All right, thank you. I uh, want to thank those who were in our first service this morning at 10 o'clock and coming back out this afternoon and to uh, just receive from Pastor Chip again. We are thrilled this afternoon to have a really, really good friend. And Chip and I have been uh, good friends for uh, over 25 years now. And uh, both began our friendship, it was really through campus ministry. He was up here at University of Richmond. He had played football for University of Richmond. Uh, I did not play football at Georgia Southern. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, played, I played some horseshoes, but, uh, but, um, but I was at Georgia Southern University uh, beginning a campus ministry there, and we both uh, ended up uh, at a conference together, I think it was 91, 92, and uh, just, uh, God just kind of brought our hearts together, and it's been a wonderful time of ebb and flowing in our life together and all that God's done, and, and uh, just, you know, just working in the gospel together, and uh, I wish that his wife, Hope, was here. Uh, she's an amazing woman of God. Uh, we'll get them back here again. Uh, I'm wanting to get them back here again in early part of 2017 to do a family marriage weekend with us, and they minister a lot in that area, and they're phenomenal. And uh, But this man is just so, uh, he moves in the office of the apostolic and moves in the office of a teacher. Uh, he's He's gone, been all over the world teaching, preaching, planting churches, and really glad that he's back here in Richmond here again and uh, went to one of his favorite places the other night, the Crazy Greek. I don't know if you've ever eaten at the Crazy Greek, but it's good eating. And so uh, so we started, the, we started the weekend off well, eating at the Crazy Greek. But let's stand up. I want us to welcome Pastor Chip Bueller. Chip, my friend, it's... Do your thing. Thanks, brother. Amen. Thank you so much. It's always a privilege to be in Richmond. Love, Pastor Doug and Cindy Watson. This is our fourth meeting in three days. So if you've been in all those meetings, I don't not only not remember what I said in the other meetings, I don't remember what I said the last 22 years I preached in Richmond either. So um, if you hear some of the same stories, I apologize. But we're just so excited to be here, every street corner, everywhere we drive, every place we go, so many memories um, of the things that God did, meeting us and changing us and blessing us in the journey of faith. And so... Um, would encourage you to listen to the message from this morning whenever that is made available. Um, and I try not to cover quite the same stuff. Um, my wife, Hope, we've been married 24 years. We're 49 this year. Our 24-year-old daughter is married, loves God, serving God. My 21-year-old son uh, does campus ministry, is in ministry school, works a job as well. And I have an 18-year-old baby boy who graduates from high school next Saturday. So we are about to be free. Free at last, free at last. We love the Bueller kids. We've had the grand adventure of Bueller kids. I've taken care of other families' kids when they had five or six. And I would go home and go, all six didn't even have the energy of one of ours. I don't know what, what, what that was that God, God did, but... Um, we, we are so thrilled with family life and looking forward to the next season of ministry. We've transitioned back to full-time ministry from bivocational. Um, I'm traveling full-time now. We're looking at being teaching pastors of planning a church this winter in Atlanta with friends um, and thrilled to get my wife back into ministry too. We invested the last six or seven years. We continued to do ministry, but we invested it in our teenagers. We invested it in our kids. We didn't want to sacrifice our family on the altars of ministry and have my kids grow up not knowing their dad because he's out serving other people. And so we felt God telling us to 
uh, focus on a different season, but that season is changing and we're excited about it. I'm going to talk to you about 2020 vision. It's the name of our ministry. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah 6. We're going to talk about God's calling for clarity and courage in an age of confusion. God wants to open our eyes to see clearly. He wants us to see and he wants us to trust and follow the things that are important. We're going to look at the reality of looking up. That to have clear vision, you first have to look up and see the Lord in the midst of circumstances that contradict his reality, that contradict his goodness. Uh, we're going to see that. But when you look up and you see who God is, then you're going to have to have clear vision to look inside yourself. Because what happens is when you see the Lord, it shows you what you lack. It's not condemnation, it's conviction. It's God bringing us to a point to look to him to fill and fulfill every need and every emptiness and every lack. And then ultimately he will ask us, to look out and to see the world with his heart and with his eyes and to go into the mission and the purpose that he's called us to. That's what we're going to look at. But when God gives you clear vision, it does something to you. Uh, I've mentioned this weekend that great clarity from God will always demand great courage in life. And when God opens your eyes, your heart, your ears, and you receive truth from him, now you're personally responsible for it. Now you can't hide from it. And so there's going to need to be courage in this process as well. And so, you know, I, I suppose it's true of all preachers, but at my age, after many years of preaching, as we grow older, there's a sense of uh, the inefficiency of our work that intensifies. The wonder grows that God can accomplish so much with inadequate instruments as me or you. Our satisfaction with the gospel, my satisfaction with the Lord Jesus Christ, my fulfillment with this Bible grows stronger every year. But I'm more increasingly discontent with the imperfect way I can share it or communicate it. And so it leaves us in a humble place, trusting God to reveal things and God to speak things that are beyond our capacity. And so I want, want you to trust God with me. So Dr. Jowett said, I may only be a blunderer at best, but I'm here as one who honestly desires better and more useful insight for the purposes of God. And that's what we're doing. My hopes are that God will become great among us. As we said this morning, I love this right here. Uh, when Isaiah left the temple after this experience in, in this chapter, he didn't say what great music. He didn't say what a great building. He didn't say what a great preacher we had today. What a great vision. Even the message on vision. He left thinking what a great God. So we're not preaching ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves. Your servants for Jesus sake. You know recently I woke up singing. Um, my favorite psalm is Psalm 145. And I woke up singing the Hillsongs tune about it. Proclaim your awesome power. Tell your mighty deeds. Declare your future kingdom of everlasting peace. And my eyes, they look unto you always. And I am captured by your majesty. All of my days, I'll sing of your greatness. All of my days, I'll sing of your grace. All of my days, I'll sing of your wondrous love. Your love in my life. That's what we experience as our eyes are open. We come to a place that our eyes, they look unto you always. And then it goes on to say in that, that psalm that one generation shall praise your works to another and declare these mighty deeds. Um, it says that we can make his name known. One of my favorite uh, blessing scriptures is in that psalm and in that song that, that I use blessing meals. That you uh, open, uh, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And it's, it's that the Lord wants to open our eyes he wants us to see him for who he is. He wants us to have clarity. And I believe that he's going to do that. We're going to be able to see him. So we're looking at vision. Vision in the spirit. Vision for a Christian is a function of the heart. It's not a function of the brain and the eyes. The condition of the heart, the condition of the emotions, the condition of the soul changes how you interpret what you see in life. 
theological term is presuppositional beings. That's a big word that says humans are created to justify in their mind what their heart has chosen. That's why Jesus is always giving senses, why seeing they can't see and hearing they can't hear. And there's all these little things Jesus says in the gospel. And he's saying this is how people are created. And they're building these defense mechanisms because of choices they've made or behaviors they commit to as opposed to seeing the reality and believing the truth that transforms them from the inside out. And so I'm hoping that our hearts will be touched tonight to see vision, okay? I'm hoping the Lord will visit us and put his word to wash our minds, to wash our hearts and our souls, and to move us forward into the center of his will. That's what this really is about, 2020 vision. Um, Amy Carmichael wrote a journal off of um, Colossians 1, 9, and 10, and uh, she said in there that uh, God wanted you to see things from his perspective, see things with his eyes by, given, by being given spiritual wisdom and insight. Okay, Second Chronicles 7.16 is one of the verses we base our ministry 2020 vision on. And most people know Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways... Then will I forgive their sin, heal their land? All of those nice things. Well, the purpose for all that's verse 16, which is the conclusion. And God says, now my eyes are upon you, like we were singing. And my name and my heart and my eyes will be among you forever. That's what the Christian life, that's what the covenant life is supposed to be. That God actually puts his focus on us. Then he places his name, his character and nature on us. That's why we're Christians. He gives his name to us, and now he says, you can have my heart, and you can have my eyes, and you can see and live life differently. That's what God's word and God's spirit does for us. That's what the grace of God does for us. All the great philosophers understood this, whether they interpreted it correctly or not. Plato said, there's an eye of the human soul more precious than 10,000 bodily eyes, for by it alone is truth seen. Oswald Sanders said, eyes that look are common, but eyes that see are rare. All have eyes, but don't have a gift of clear seeing. That's Machiavelli. Men in general judge more from appearance than reality. People are prejudiced. People misinterpret. People look at Rifle and think he's a bad guy. And they look at me and think I'm a good guy. And they might do that because of earrings or tattoos, and that's called prejudice. They might look at somebody of one color and somebody of another color and have different opinions. And there may be no reality to it. I had a simple truth I taught my kids growing up. There's good and bad of everything. Trust God in it. It helped in all my parenting. There's good and bad bugs. There's good and bad bees. There's good and bad snakes. There's good and bad preachers. There's good and bad white people. There's good and bad black people. There's good and bad old people. Good and bad young people. So you've got to have discernment and recognize who you can respect, who you can trust, and not just have your own interpretation and your own faulty opinion. When, when we talk about 2020 vision, this is what God wants to do. He wants to help us with this. I, I, wasn't, man, I don't think that. I, I would have never thought that about you, Rifle. It was just somebody who made a, a comment outside as a testimony about you earlier saying people would misinterpret if they saw him and they don't know the man of God he is. So it's a positive testimony, you know, but it's like people, uh, people uh, don't really want to go to God to have their heart cleansed and then to see like he sees and to trust like he trusts. And that's the opportunity I'm inviting you to here. A.W. Tozier says, we need the gift of discernment in the pulpits and pews, not the ability to predict the future, but an anointed eye, the power of spiritual penetration, interpretation, so we can interpret the present, a gift of clear seeing to pass sentence on our day. Like the Old Testament sons of Issachar, they knew and understood the times and knew what they ought to be doing. So there's a war for clarity. And the prophets, when there's difficulties, pray to God, oh Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you let them see there's more with us than there is against us? And that's really what this is about. Let's ask God to open our heart and open our eyes. Father, I thank you for those that are here tonight. In these moments that we have together, we're trusting you, Holy Spirit. Father, would you put your name on us? Would you give us our, your heart? Would you give us your eyes? 
Would you give us the clarity we need and the courage for life to live in this day? We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amy Carmichael had this prayer. Lord, by the riches of your grace, open my eyes that I can see. And in the shining of your face, reveal your perfect will to me. So if eyesight is common but vision is rare, then God wants to remind us to look and see what he's saying, it says in Habakkuk 2, because what we behold, we become, 2 Corinthians 3. What you put your gaze and attention on transforms what's taking place in your life. Correct vision is crucial. What I'm saying is you've got to be intentional about your attention and putting your eyes on the Lord and actually interpreting situations correctly and in reading the word so it would transform us to see and think the way that the Lord does. And so that's what we're after here today, to see things, vision at a distance, and it's coming into view. So what we have here in our first truth is that we must look up. Most people, when they want vision, they're trying to see clearly the circumstances, the politics, the education, the economics, the problems, the difficulties, a way out, which idea is going to get the most money for the business? What decisions do I need to make now? And I just want to encourage you, biblically, you don't begin by looking at the circumstance. You begin by looking up and hoping to see through the circumstance to the Lord. Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe or his glory filled the temple. It's a powerful and profound passage. It's about clear vision. It's about experiencing the power of the Lord. A bad situation is taking place in his life. The year that King Uzziah died, if you want to study the scripture, go to 2 Chronicles 26 on your own time. There's an entire chapter written on that. You think we got tough politics. You think you don't like who we got to vote for. Everybody's got opinions on that stuff. How would you like a president elected at 16 years of age? Welcome to Uzziah. Our nation's in trouble and a 16-year-old wins the presidential election and doesn't care about anything but how he dresses and multimedia. Uzziah took over at 16 years. Not only that, they removed term limits in Israel and he reigned for 52 years after being 16. He started out after a season of immaturity when you study in Kings and Chronicles. He started out that way and then God got a hold of his heart like God does with many people late high school and early college years. And, and as he got a hold of his heart, he began to seek out what should we do? Not what should do I want to do and what do the people want me to do, but what's right to do for our nation? What's going to help the people? What's going to be principled? What's going to make a difference? And it says for a season, he does that which is right in the sight of the Lord. And he's blessed and the nation prospers. And it says that there's a prophet alive in his time that has understanding and the visions and the word of the Lord and he respects the prophet and he respects his pastor and he respects um, the priesthood that is there, the, the Christian leaders or the covenant leaders that are around. And it says he prospers and the nation prospers. And then as good things start to happen, it says a time comes that Uzziah's heart is lifted up. He starts to become arrogant. He starts to think, you know, if I wasn't elected at 16, all this good stuff would have never happened. And now everything starts to go south. He starts rejecting the words of the prophets. He wants to remove the pastor's relationship from politics. He wants to get the Bible out of everything. And he begins to think he's the one that's caused everything. We're going to trust in man rather than trusting in truth or trusting in God. And then everything goes bad. He actually goes in and starts trying to take over the job of spiritual leaders as if the government can do the job of pastors or parents. Never can, never will. But they start trying to, and he ends up with leprosy. And then everybody gets terrified, thinking our nation is going to crumble, civil war is going to break out, things are terrible. And in the midst of the most negative time, one of the most negative times in Israel's history, then the king dies, and everyone's depressed. And no one knows what's going to happen next. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah lifted his eyes. He saw the Lord was on the throne. You know, the circumstances didn't change. 2020 vision usually begins for you in the time that the answers aren't prayer and the breakthroughs don't come and the circumstances don't change, but God is enough anyway. 
I told some mission stories this morning that I think we're supposed to be in this tonight. And I was supposed to tell some pro football stories this morning. I got my stories mixed up, but they fit in any of these. I think they'll fit right here. Had a young man that got married in my church. That disciple got married. He ended up a top 10 NFL draft choice. He's playing for the Baltimore Ravens. We were doing our Monday night leadership meeting for our church in Florida and I heard a knock on the door. Monday night, pastor's elders meeting, there's a knock on the door, and there he is. I don't even watch TV, much less, less, less watching the sports in those days. I had three kids in diapers, and I had three churches, and I was traveling and doing missions. I didn't have time to watch stuff. I didn't even know what was going on. And he walks in with a sling. And they say uh, that he had torn stuff in his shoulder and wasn't going to be able to play, the doctor said. And he said, but I think God has convicted me that he wants this year to be a witness and a testimony to him and his glory. Pastor Chip, will you and the leaders pray for me? So I said, sure, we lay hands on this young man. We prayed for him. And in my mind, I'm going, God's going to do a miracle. He's going to heal him. It's going to be on ESPN. It's going to be on NFL Network. They didn't have an NFL Network back then. This was a long time ago. I just thought I'd say that. I've always wanted to say that. Anyway, um, you know, and you know what? He left and he wasn't healed. But I encouraged him as he left. I said, I don't know what God's up to. I don't know what your testimony is going to be. But if you have that conviction, trust God in it. Whether you're hurt or not, whether you get a second opinion or not, you're not in this for this season. And you're not in this for the salary. You're in this to honor God and to be a steward and to open doors for the kingdom in the future. And you know that. And he said, yes, sir, I do. So I said, let's trust God with that. He goes back. He never gets healed. He gets a second opinion. They say you can keep playing and not hurt yourself worse. So they tape his arm to his side. He's an outside linebacker, defensive end. It was the fifth game of the season. He played the rest of the season. Front page of parade of USA Today had him at the last game of the season for the NFL. He led the NFL in sacks with one arm. The one-armed man that sat on the front page of the sports. He helped plant a church in that city. He birthed a Christian school, homeschooling school and leadership academy in Tallahassee, Florida, um, he's running for political office. He's serving Jesus. God had another way. The circumstances didn't change, but he saw the Lord and saw God wanted to use him and trusted. I mean, that blew me away. I thought it had to be another way. There was another one, another guy, um, a, a pro athlete from Philadelphia Eagles kept showing up in my church. And I thought he thought I was a great preacher. And so I was just, I just thought that was cool. And then I noticed he was always looking at the same young lady that had been a part of our church planning team. Had been a track athlete at FSU, and I thought, it's not my preaching. He likes this young lady. So anyway, long story short, he married. I did the wedding, and we did the premarital counseling and all that. And I can't remember if it was a year before the marriage or the year after. He comes down, comes into my church office. He says, Pastor Chip, he says, it's my eighth or ninth year. He says, I don't have any retirement. He says, my agent wants me to hold out on my contract. Do you all know what I'm talking about right now? When the circumstances don't change, but you see and trust God anyway. He says, what do you think I should do? I don't answer people's questions like that directly. I said, I don't know. What do you think I would tell you you should do? <laughs> what do you think Jesus would tell you to do? What do you think you should do? So he started sharing different things back. And he said, he said well, if I'm going to be a witness and be an example of the teammates, he said, my agent says, if I get hurt, I get no retirement the rest of my life. But if I play one more year, if I hold out and they extend my contract, I've got retirement for the rest of my life. You know, don't I need to take care of my family? I said, I don't know. That's not my responsibility. I said, I personally think that would be God's responsibility. So I said, what do you think? He says, well, he says, I think having hung around you guys, I think you would say I'm a covenant man and I should keep my word. And I said, that's exactly what I believe. Did you sign a contract? Did they give you a signing bonus? Are you on contract for this year? So why would you hold out when you gave your word? And, uh, and he said, okay. Second practice of the season, he tears his Achilles tendon in his ankle. He's done. He's done. All right? I see the newspaper article, I'm at home going, oh, Jesus, don't let him blame you, God. Don't, don't let him blame me, God. Don't, God, help us. He's a big boy. I don't want to get hurt. Is this okay for you? Are you encouraged? It's a year later. He's going in to clean out his locker. 
And the head coach comes down from the Philadelphia Eagles and walks in and says, can I talk with you, son? And he looks him in the eye. He says, I want to tell you this. He says, the owner didn't agree with me, but I told him I wanted to do this, and we're doing it. He says, in all my years, I've never had a guy not hold out in your situation. He says, I know you may never play again, but he says, your character is different, and that matters to me. We're going to sign you to a new contract tomorrow, and even if you never play, I want you in the locker room the next two years for the young guys to see somebody they should be like. I spent all that time thinking, oh, God, they're going to all come after me. God is faithful. If we'll look up and see him, if we'll trust who he really is. I was in Kunming, China. I couldn't speak the English language, but I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was teaching underground Christians and church planners. Uh, they had leased an apartment, and they had tore out the wall between two apartments to go back and forth so the women could live on one side, the men on the other. And the, sh- the only person, once they smuggled them in at night to this place in Kunming, China, they stayed in there for nine months and never left the building. The only person who ever came and went was the chef that did the shopping and the cooking. And so I'm in there, they smuggle me in at night, and I'm teaching, and we're ministering, and we're praying. And then all of a sudden, some guy shows up and grabs me, yanks me, runs out the front door, throws me in a car, takes off, can't even speak English, stops somewhere, buys some stuff, hops in the car, drives somewhere else, stops, leans out. He goes, use these. And he throws me a bunch of the hand cameras. Just drops me off at this place. It looks like a big garden, and I'm all alone. I'm going, what in the world is going on? So I've got these little pocket cameras, and I'm just taking pictures. There's a couple hours later, somebody comes running, Pastor Cheap, Pastor Cheap. You know, I mean, these guys are all like this big. You don't think I stick out in China? I'm not in Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong two weeks before. I'm like in Maine. I'm like in there, right? He goes, we're so sorry. He says, we just have to do this for two days because they're following you. And I'm sitting there going, so it starts in my mind. Okay, my little kid's at home. What if I get arrested and I get thrown into jail and da-da-da-da-da? I went, well, I could write books and they're going to let a U.S. citizen come back. And I go, I said, well, I'm not worried about that. And he goes, it's not about you. He says, they'll arrest every one of them and they'll never be seen again. I was happy to wander about and take pictures for a few days. I actually didn't get smuggled back in for the safety of them. They took me to another city. You know, so it didn't turn out. I prayed prayers. I said, oh, Lord, we'll do this and do that. Next thing I know, they're shuttling me off to another city. And I couldn't train anymore because they were following us. But I ended up in the home of a couple of Christian leaders whose marriages were in difficult situations. And when I've been sent to train all these pastors, I ended up just talking to two different husbands and wives about listening to each other and forgiving each other and having peace in their home and stopping the fighting and arguing and not letting the pressure and, and so everything became different, but it was, I just, I had to go, Lord, how do I find you in this circumstance? How do I find you who spent thousands of dollars to come help these pastors? And now I can't, it's because God cared about a married couple enough. And because he cared about those people fulfilling their mission enough, not to just keep the status quo so I could give another good testimony, but so that they could fulfill the mission and the purpose that God had them for and the reason they had seen the Lord saw the Lord high and lifted up. The king in the kingdom is above all things. Proverbs 29, 18, without a vision, the people perish. Without an unveiling, without continual increasing revelation and opening views of things related to the Lord and truth, without that, we cast off restraint. And so God has some great things for us if we'll look up to see him. That's lordship. Recognize that all authority in heaven and earth is given unto him. We want to look to him. But see, the thing that happens is um, as soon as I look up to the Lord and I see him, then I look within and see what I am not. To look inside with clear vision at me. Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of unclean people. You see, Isaiah just spent an entire chapter, go back to Isaiah 5 sometime, and he was so judgmental and religious, yelling at everybody for their problems and pointing at them, like the politics and the arguments of our day. 
Nobody has any principle to give, so all they can do is attack the other person running against them. It's called ad hominem. Anybody who studied philosophy, anybody who studies ethics, anybody who studies theology says you have nothing to say if your attack is against the person rather than against the principle or the truth. And it's the only type of politics we have anymore. You know, and then there's there's Christians and preachers that are like that, running around pointing at everything and everyone that's wrong, rather than bringing God and showing Him and looking within to get things changed that can become a witness and a testimony. So Isaiah's running around. Here's my modern chippy translation. He's running around. Woe to you dads who won't do anything, and then your kids have to pay the price. Woe to you moms that are bouncing around in differing relationships and your kids are getting the wrong. Woe to you frat boys. You get drunk and you hook up every single weekend. Woe to you. There's like 20 woes in Isaiah 5. And it goes through all kinds of stuff like that. Woe to you judges. You don't have any justice in the courthouse. Woe to you politicians. You say one thing, you do another. Woe to you preacher. And so Isaiah is pointing out everything he thinks is wrong with everyone else until he sees the Lord. And then it's me. Wow. Lord, look at me. I'm not who I thought I was. I don't have what I thought I had. That's called conviction, not condemnation. And when it comes, it comes to bring humility. You see, humility, G.K. Chesterton says, has been wrong placed in modern civilization. Modesty has been moved from ambitions to convictions. God wanted us modest in our personal ambitions but strong in our personal convictions. The world wants you to have huge personal ambitions that are humanistic and really just idiotic and wrong. You can't be anything you want to be. You can't do anything you want to do. Right? We talked about this morning. The world says create your identity. Religion says earn it. God says receive it from me. So the world says create it. We say it's the American Idol Syndrome. You know, everybody's like, well, you know, I'm just here to prove you can do what you want to do and have fun doing it. And it's awesome and it works. And one person wins and 10,000 go home losers. And half of them on those shows never were supposed to sing anyway. I, I told them this morning, I always wanted to be in a band. It's my dream to sing, but I couldn't sing one single note correct if y'all all offered all the money in your pockets and your bank account. I couldn't do it. I still had a high school band, Buckwheat's Bad Times, but they wouldn't give me a microphone. I just played the electric guitar. This is, this is so fun for me. I get to talk rock. You know, but what's the whole point? You can't create your own identity. You can't do what you want to do. I have a pastor friend that has a doctorate degree in math and a doctorate degree in physics and pastors a church. I couldn't get a high school degree in math and physics. I'm smart in some other ways, but not in those ways, right? If I ain't got the ability to do that, you know, where there's a will, there's an A. Not in everything. Yes, in core classes when you're under stuff, lower ages. But you get into something difficult, some people can do it and some cannot, right? I coach football. I play football. Right? I've done that for, I've done football stuff 30, 30 something years. Most of y'all wouldn't last 10 minutes at my practice, much less a game. You know? You can't just play football because you want to. I have to give that speech the first day of practice every year because I care about you and I'm not going to take you to the hospital. You got no reason being here, buddy. You know? Um, they're just, there's a difference in that. You have to look in at what you're not. Identity crisis happens in our nation because nobody will look inside to see what they're not to then ask God, who did you make me to be? What is it that I can do? Look at your own personality, your own abilities. It takes humility to do that, to say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my way, but your way be done. God, how did you wire me? Am I good with people? Am I good with technology? You're not always good with both. <laughs> Right? Some people are. I'm sorry. Some people are. Just not at my house. <laughs> Am I helping anybody in here? You know, it's skills and abilities. There are seasons for everything. There are seasons you study stuff and seasons you work jobs that are not your calling and are not your greatest abilities. And that's just a part of life. But you're always moving 
through trust and faithfulness and humility towards those things God has created and prepared you for and that you have faithfully been working towards. And see, America is full of, not the American dream, this nation is full of American nightmares where they chose their own personal ambition and there were hidden dream costs. I watch it. I can't wear all my state championship and college rings anymore because my fingers are too fat now But because I'm older. But if I could put them on my fingers, I, I'd go see these coaches give speeches. And this one guy had nine national championships. He's going, shh, taking them off, putting them on the podium. Stood there silent for a minute, and he goes, I'd give every one of those back. If I could have my wife's love and respect, a relationship with my kids, my integrity among my peers, and a desire to keep doing what got me into this first one for the rest of my life. Hidden dream cost. I see it all the time in Hollywood. I see it in athletics. They reach the pinnacle. They reach the goal. And the cost was more than they understood. And they lost everything valuable and important pursuing the wrong dream or pursuing it the wrong way. And when they got there, they lost everything that mattered. God has a better way than that. We've got to humble ourselves and let him teach us. Let him direct us. Let him place us on the path. We don't always know what we're going to be. I took about 20 uh, football players from the FSU team that won the national championship in the early 90s to a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and three of them roomed with me in a hotel. And one of them was the preseason Buckus Award winner. You know what that is? The best linebacker in the nation in football. All these guys were Christians. We're at a Christian retreat conference. It's a beautiful place. And the first day before the conference begins, some of them decide we're going to work out at the, um, at the YMCA or something next door to the hotel. And I get a call, and this one young man who's supposed to be the best defensive end linebacker in college football for the best team in the nation, they call me to come down and said, we need to pray for him or take him to the hospital because he just messed up his knee. And when I saw him, I went, it's done. It's over. And we loaded him up. We called 911. They came and got him. We went to the emergency room. When I saw the doctor, he said, it's, it's not good. I had to pick up the phone and call Bobby Bowden and call his mom and say he's with me in Phoenix and his football career is done for playing pickup basketball at the YMCA. You don't think that was a humbling experience? And I'm wondering what, I'm sitting there wondering what am I going to say to him? What am I going to say to the guys on this trip? How are you going to do this? I had prayed for him to be healed. He didn't get healed. Not that one. He became a preacher. Didn't get drafted, sat out the year, got drafted by San Diego a year later, got a signing bonus, then he wouldn't get better. He went to being a preacher and a pastor. Who would have thought that? Maybe God had a better plan. Outside the emergency room, the best football player on that trip came up to me. Big old, big old boy. We sat on a rock outside the Phoenix emergency room. He started talking to me saying, Pastor Chip, I don't want to play football. I don't want to play football. I want to go to the mission field. I want to be a youth pastor. I want to make a difference that's eternal in people's lives. And it humbled me. It, it got to my heart. And I stopped and I looked across at him and I said, if you play football, people will listen to you that would never listen to me. That's the way this world works. I said, you have a stewardship. I said, you'll have money for your family. He became the starting center for the Dallas Cowboys. Strong Christian, living life in the NFL as a virgin. Turned down Playboy All-American. You should hear the ridicule all those famous football players would give him for living pure, for waiting for his wife, who was a cheerleader at FSU back at our church. I was humbled that this negative situation turned into two of the greatest testimonies I ever knew. He's got a ministry in Miami. He's still a good friend. He's got a godly family. He coaches a Christian football team. He does missions in South and Central America every couple of months. An incredible leader. All out of this turmoil. All out of this difficult situation. See, when you look in and see what you're really not, then you'll look down 
in humility. And now you can have a poverty of spirit, right? Those who were poor of spirit, whose a sense of poverty was spiritual, godly things, theirs is the kingdom. Now I know I lack and I'm empty and God can come and meet me. God can fill me. God can give me what I can't have. See, people don't understand. They're always like, give me more spiritually. Give me more. And God's saying, empty out what you have. Let go of what you have. Surrender. And he fills us to overflowing. I got humbled like that. I was preaching in Nevada. I think it's story time. I was preaching in Nevada. And we're sitting outside of that wonderful place of fellowship and pastoral council, Starbucks. About to go in. And the phone rings in, in, the, in the suburban we're in, in Reno, Nevada. And the, it's the bomb squad for Reno calling the pastor. He says, Pastor, we're about to go in. There's a terrorist bomb at this location. We want you to pray for us and pray for our families before we go in. And he turns around and hits me. He goes, hey, I got Pastor Chip here. He's preaching on the weekend. Pastor Chip, pray for the men. I didn't say aw. I didn't say that was awesome. I went... I'm, I'm just telling the truth. My first thought was, I wonder if the bomb's in this building or if it's in the hotel he's about to drop me off. Or is it where we're preaching tonight? That was my first, I'm just telling you the truth. And then I sat there and it was silence. I'm sitting here going inside of me. I'm going, oh God, what am I supposed to pray? Because then I realized the voice on the other side. I knew his wife. I knew two of his daughters. I knew he was a cop. I didn't know he was bomb squad. Talk about humility. God is bigger than we think. See, as soon as a circumstance goes bad, or as soon as we realize we don't have what we need to do this ourselves without God, then we don't know what to do. And the whole point of 2020 vision is just to get there now because you've seen him and say, God can do anything, anytime, anywhere. Anything he's ever done, he'll do. He's no respecter of persons. He's not prejudiced. If it worked for David, if it worked for Paul, it'll work for you. If you sow a biblical principle, you reap a biblical harvest, a biblical result. But we have to look up and see him. You have to look in, see what you're not. You have to look down in humility. You've got to make a request. It starts talking in Isaiah here about the altar now. The altar, forgiveness and redemption. The seraphim take coals from the altar and they come and they cleanse his his lips, and they say, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Your lips are cleansed. And this is a Christian leader. This is a, this is a Jewish leader. This is a covenant leader, right? And God's saying the altar matters in our life. A place of altar, a place of prayer, a place of forgiveness, a place of intimacy with the Lord, a place of brokenness and humility, a place of healing, place of worship and right there at that place God can meet us and he can do something special you know the other humbly experience I had was in South Africa with Pastor Bill and one of the leaders took me uh, they took our mission teams one direction and they would take me to speak to pastors and they took me to a maximum security prison it was quite a drive and uh, I knew I was going to speak at the prison but they didn't tell me till I got there because I had been with some other missionaries uh, talking with them on the previous ride. They said, yeah, you're speaking to the prisoners at the maximum security prison on death row. I had a nice discipleship message prepared for the campus. And they changed direction because they took my team there and I'm supposed to go talk to the men on death row. What would you do? It took two hours from the time we got to the front gate of the prison, going through lock gates, past armed guards, getting checked in stuff, all these different things till we got to an inside room that was all dirt floor about this big. And these men began to file in. As they picked up Bibles and picked up hymnals and I looked around in their eyes and they started, no instruments. They just started singing hymns and singing worship. And in between, they would pray to God and pray for each other. And I just sat there humbled. I just went, I don't even know how to worship and pray. These men have no hope. 
They have no tomorrow. They have nothing in this life. And they had a sweeter fellowship and a better presence and a humbler heart than I have with all the goodness God has given me. It went deep into my heart. It marked me. God wants to mark us with the reality of who he is and the reality of sincere, unfeigned devotion for the Lord that's in some people around us and some heroes in history to say, you can live this, you can have this, you can be this. If we'll just simply humble ourselves and then trust him in the process. The Lord did some amazing things in in those meetings time. We actually got a testimony. There were two men who their brothers had killed each other So they had killed other family members. They had ended up in prison together. They had tried to kill each other. Then they both became Christians. And every time they came in, they sat by each other and they held hands. And they worshiped and prayed together for their families on death row. And they told me how Jesus forgave us and we forgave each other and reconciled us. And we think our disagreements and problems will keep us from relationships. We don't have anything like that. God can do anything. Yeah. You know how this goes to? You have to look out. Once you have these humbling moments and forgiveness and healing and desperation moments, then God will say, look out. And you have mission. You have purpose. Isaiah 6, 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. What I love about this is the picture and the sound. Here's Isaiah, God's prophet, God's man, God's leader. I just picture Isaiah like this. He's been humbled. He's looked up. He's looked in. He's gone down on his knees. He's worshiping like this. Then he hears the voice and he stands up. But where's the voice? God's not talking to Isaiah as a person. God's right next to him. Going, who should I send? Who will go for us? And then he's like, here am I, send me. God's just waiting for us to respond to the invitation. It is for us personally. Heaven's concern is that we'll run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. That we would be clear, 2020 vision is that you would be clear on your purposes. That you would be committed to your mission. That you would be a participator with the call of God. That you would get in the game, right? Who will go for us? He wants you to be involved in the things that God is saying and doing in the earth. I told one story about Pastor Elijah from Uganda. I was supposed to be in Uganda the last two weeks and ended up not being able to make it. And our pastor friend, Elijah, he told us a, a story about participation. When they buy property in Uganda, if you've seen the movie, I don't encourage it, machine gun preacher, that's not how we need to spread the gospel um, but it will show you the condition of the, the youth and the, the orphans. 85% are under 16, 18 years of age. Almost everyone's orphaned from Idi Amin, from Muslim extremists, and from AIDS. There's almost no men living, and almost everyone's an orphan in the country. And about all that um, is left is some Muslim militants that have moved from other countries um, and the orphans and the Christian pastors, because the Christian pastors are young, they've served God, they've been married to one woman, so they can't get AIDS, married to one woman, and if they've survived so far, about the only men and leaders left are them, and there's an opportunity for revival. The problem is everything's poverty and everything's orphans. I told some of the orphan stories, I think, this morning, and some faith stories, but he said this was a participation story. Pastors, we come to church and go, would somebody help take up the offering? Would somebody be willing to help with the children downstairs? Um, would somebody come out for our day to help us serve food to guests that show up? And we, we would like people to participate in the body of Christ. But he told me at this meal, he says, Pastor Chip, he says, they won't sell us land for a church unless we have all the resources and materials. So their country is so poor, he says, if you buy property, you have to have the materials already purchased or made to build the building or they won't finalize the sale. So he said for their first church building, he had to go to all the families in the church and ask if they would be willing to make bricks at their home. Many live in tents and in huts. He asked them to make bricks and stack the bricks up 
at their house. And then when they went to purchase the land the same day, everyone in the church sent someone with bricks and they stacked the bricks on the side of the property and they could finalize the sale. And the mission teams that come over to serve in the conferences can work with the guest pastors and everyone goes in and builds the building during the week of the conference in between meetings. How would you like to do that to build this building? Yeah, we're doing a building drive here at Harvest Renewal. Who would like to bring the chandeliers? Who's going to bring the sheetrock? Who wants to bring the plumbing? Anybody got light bulbs? We want you to collect them for a year. And then we're going to meet together and we're going to work on it together. And it's going to be amazing what God does. People do that all over the planet all the time. They do life together. They do community. They do family. They do the body of Christ. Almost all the promises in the Bible are plural pronouns. You want to learn to pray? Stop praying with me, myself, and I in your prayers, first and foremost. When Jesus taught us to pray, everything he taught us was plural pronouns. Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And when we think in community, and we think in family, and we think as the body, and we embrace one another's responsibilities and one another's faults and failures, and we carry each other, and we care for each other, and we think and pray that way, it changes things. And then when you're alone with the Lord, you can have your personal communion. But our intercession needs to be about us and about our nation and about my city and about our school and about my neighborhood and about my family and about, about the plural relationships that we have around us. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God's even speaking as a trinity when he does this. Oh, there's so many things I'd love to talk about in here. But let me say this. If you ever saw the movie Fury... And once again, I'm not telling you to watch a rated R war movie. Shia LaBeouf was the Christian, the preacher. World War II movie. Tank warfare. Against Nazi German fascism. And there's a scene late in the movie where the tank is broken. Everyone's dead. And Brad Pitt, who's the commander of the tank, turns to the men there and he says, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to fulfill my duty. You guys go on. Go on back to base. You see, the vision and the call for what the mission was for them, the command they had been given was to protect that crossroads so that all the European towns and communities behind them could survive and so that the soldiers would survive that could move to the front. And if that crossroads wasn't protected and kept, then all of those European lives would be lost. All of those soldiers that were behind them would be lost because of the firepower of the Germans was more than we had at the time. Are you following me? We're talking life and death. We're talking a decision that when it's made is I'm going to lay down my life so that somebody else can live a life. Does that sound like someone we talk about around here? Jesus. So when Brad, st Brad Pitt's character, the commander of the tank, says he's going to stay, one by one they all give in and say we're staying too. And they prepare the scene. They climb in the tank. They see the thousand Germans and the anti-tank guns and everybody coming in there. They're going to fight. And the commander says to him, he says, Preacher, do you have a word for us? And he says, I have a verse I think of oftentimes, many times, from the prophet Isaiah. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And they all started crying because they're laying down their lives. And he said, Here am I, send me. Here am I. Send me. They all died but the youngest in that battle. And they saved the crossroads. And the next generation lived and lived in freedom. This is simple, my friends. Every time you say yes to God's conviction, invitation, calling, opportunity for your life, it's just as life and death, just as transformational just as generationally blessing as those soldiers in the war that laid down their life so that we could have freedom. Every time you say yes to getting pregnant as a mother, say yes to a Christian marriage, say yes to run for political office, you say yes to coach a youth team, you say yes to go to the mission field, you say yes to take in a relative or a friend that's in a difficult situation, 
You say yes to going back to people who did you wrong, to forgive them and to bless them and pray for them and believe for reconciliation. Every time you say yes to God's invitation and call, there are eternal consequences hanging in the balance. And God's waiting to bring blessing and breakthrough for those who will trust him and say, here am I, send me. Mothers, you've done this many times in your lives. You're a tremendous blessing. You're a tremendous encouragement. When you make a commitment to care for one child, all of heaven and earth goes into battle over your life and over your care for a child. People G.K. Chesterton said would rather try to take care of the 100 to 1,000 different people, their small minor needs, rather than the major needs or the character development of one person that's their own child. That's because what's done outside of the home is much easier than what's done inside a home. And in all of this, God's inviting us to natural family and spiritual family and kingdom purpose and kingdom mission. And my invitation is, moms, do your mothering. Dads, be responsible and be gentle and be like God. Look to the invisible parent in the heavens. Be like him. Do what he's doing. Do what he's saying. My challenge to each of you is say no where God's not involved and say yes to what he's saying and doing in your life in this season and watch what he'll do and how many people he'll bless. When I said yes to preaching and doing Bible studies at the University of Richmond as a football player, I didn't know my football career would end and I didn't know 50 kids from one year of campus ministry would be full-time pastors and preachers 10 years later. But they were. When I said yes to starting a Friday night men's Bible study at Florida State University, connected to Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who was one of my mentors, and when I started that Bible study, I had no idea. I did it Friday night because I wanted men who wanted to find God, and I thought they'd all go out to party on Friday night, and if they showed up to this Bible study, they were serious, and we could mentor them as men and leaders, and they could influence their peers. And within six months, four of the people that were in those Friday night Bible studies became first-round NFL draft choices. I didn't start a Bible study to reach football players. I started a Bible study for men's leadership. And they showed up from different walks of life. I had no idea. I thought it was a small group Bible study of people that were breaking the couches in my townhouse. I did not know they would be leaders and start ministries and go on to political careers and starting schools and doing other things. All I did was say yes to going back to Tallahassee, Florida for six months starting a Bible study connected to our friends that did campus and men's ministry and see if a few people's lives would be touched. And I think there's 25 churches that have come out of that over the last 25 years. That's not me. That was God's yes. That was God's vision. That was his purpose. Not for me, but for their lives, for their marriages, for their children for their grandchildren, for the cities they would go to, for the labors they would do, for the graduate schools and the professors they would have. A couple of those guys that went high academics started Bible studies for professors at their grad, at Rutgers University and at other campuses. And those men began to come in and and pray for the hurt relationships in their life and open their Bible and ask God to help them. And God met them there. Brothers and sisters, will you look up and see the Lord? Will you look in and recognize you don't have enough to do it yourself? Will you humble yourself and pray and make an altar somewhere in your home for devotions and for going to God and for talking to the Lord about people that have needs and for asking him to fill the emptiness? And then would you stand up and listen for his voice and sense his conviction and and discern that vision he's given and for this season say yes to what it is he's saying and doing? Let's pray. Father, would you bless these men and women to have open hearts and open lives? Lord, would you do something unique in and through them so that those around them will never be the same. Father, I'm asking for your peace that passes understanding and for your redemptive purpose to be released in them and through them. And I'm asking for testimonies 
surrounding their life that say God is faithful and Jesus is Lord and I trusted him and he did it. He did it. Lord, be glorified and bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, thank you, Chip. How many of you just feel like something's been stirring? God's been stirring something in your heart tonight. Like Chip said, it's important for you to go and hear what he says. What is it, what is it that he's stirring in your heart? You know, what, a, what an amazing... What an amazing word tonight, Chip. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You know, all of our, everything that, that we have here that's preached is, is on our website. You can listen to it. You can watch it. You can download it. And uh, this one of, these are one of those messages that you need to go back to and need to listen again. Uh, I encourage you that if you were not with us this morning, you need to listen to this morning's message on the call of God. It was phenomenal. So uh, we want to take a moment here uh, just to to receive a love offering. Um, in Proverbs chapter 11, the writer writes, Solomon writes, that a generous soul will be made rich. A generous soul will be made rich. Does it say, does it put a figure on that? You know, a generous soul has nothing to do about the amount. It's the attitude of the heart of just, you know, I'm going to be generous with what I have. It says, a generous soul will be made rich. He who waters or refreshes others, will he himself be refreshed? It's a powerful principle of the Lord that will always come true. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. 